Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we talk to the novelist and screenwriter Stephen Markley about his 900-page epic novel, The Deluge. We dig into how he constructs a sprawling narrative and what it's like to count Stephen King as a fan. We talk to Stephen about writing for the TV show Only Murders in the Building, and he talks about where he thinks the money is in writing, and he gives us his philosophy on what it takes to succeed as a writer. He tells us, you can't guarantee your book will be a success. It comes down to loving the work, loving what you're doing, loving the story you're telling, and being ready. Stephen's hard work and dedication to his writing career really shone through. And so without further ado, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Stephen Markley. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Without further ado, welcome to the London Writer Salon, Steve Markley. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. It's great to see you, Matt Trinetti. You're looking gorgeous as always. Making me blush, Steve. Let's try not to turn this into a bromance. But Steve is an, an old friend. We used to live together in Chicago. So let's start off by talking about your mom. And I don't mean that in like the middle school, the high school dig, dig way. But you give the dedication to your mom in the deluge. And you say, all this began when I was a child. And you sat me on your lap in front of a computer and asked me what story I wanted to tell. And so sweet. And But actually, what did your mom's encouragement look like? as you were growing up in those early days? Yeah, you know, she just, uh, my parents were people who had books around the house a lot. And I enjoyed writing a story before I could read, before I knew how to sort of use the tools of language. And so I'd, you know, get with her and she would be like, okay, what what do you want to write about? And usually it would be like a King Kong versus Godzilla type uh, epic in those days. But uh, yeah, you know, just as I grew up, I sort of like found that this was something I really enjoyed. Uh, and it probably traces back to her, you know, her influence. That was, you know, time we spent together. That was time she was encouraging my creativity. Mm. So any, any moms and dads out there, listen, you might be seeding, uh, seeding some future authors by your encouragement. Love that. And kudos to your mom. So Steve, you're the first guest that we've had back. And we interviewed you in 2021. And this was, we talked about your early career, published this book, Tales of Iceland. We talked about Iowa Writers Workshop, your novel, Ohio. So we're not going to rehash too much of that. And we're going to share a link to that interview to everyone here if you want, want to dive into that. There's so many gems in that interview. But one connective tissue through that is that back then, a couple of years ago, Stephen King you guys were kind of pen pals in a way where he found Ohio. He liked it. You were writing back and forth. And now it seems like King has become a Markley fanboy in a weird yeah. <laughs> kind of like upside down turn of events. And I don't know if you would call this success. I mean, certainly looking at you and knowing your journey, I would say you've definitely reached a level of success. Does it feel like how you thought it would being like pals with Stephen King and like all these things that have happened to you? Well, I think what's happened 
for me is that as you know, when I first came out and published this book, you know, I was younger and I was very enamored of the idea of success. And I think one of the things that I was lucky enough to have was a period of failure after that, in which I sort of had to reorient myself around why it is I wanted to do this in the first place. And so my philosophy is now just like, even though this has been an amazing period of my life, you know, not to get too high about it and not to get too low when inevitably, you know, whatever happens, backlash, failure, the next book tanks, whatever it might be. And just keeping my my mind oriented around the fact that it's like writing is what I love to do and has been since I was that little kid. And so, you know, very much I've been telling myself in the months leading up to the release of this book, which I've been working on for so long, it's like, okay, this is not going to make you happy. This is not going to make you feel complete. Like it's on to the next thing, right? And so I think it's just, that's a level of maturity I didn't have earlier in my career. Mm. That's interesting because you mentioned that in our last interview, I was going to ask you about it. So I'm glad you've managed to stay grounded. It's a nice reminder. Who knows how grounded I am, but you know, it's like, <laughs> I like to tell myself that. So. Yeah, especially you're from, uh, I don't know if you want to share where you are right now, if that's public information or no. It is. Um, I'm actually on the first day of a new job. I'm on the Paramount studio lot in a writer's room. So I had to like pull a power move and step out of the room like on the first day to go take this appearance. And yeah, you know, it's exciting. It's really exciting. It's a new show from Dan Fogelman. The concept sounds really interesting. I can't quite share that yet, but um, yeah, it's really cool. Cool. Well, we hope to dig some of into the, your experience in a TV writer's room too. So a couple of things have transpired since 2021, our last interview. The TV show that you alluded to in that interview was Only Murders in the Building, which became hugely popular on Hulu. You've published your second book, The Deluge, uh, an epic 900-page book. So we're going to focus on those two things majorly in this interview. Let's turn to The Deluge. First, what gives you the, the gumption, the gall, the balls to make us read a 900-page book, Steve? Yeah, I mean, with any project, like I never set out saying I'm going to write 900 pages. And the first draft of this, before I turned it into my editor, was 1,500, 1,500 pages. All I did was like, here's the story in my head, and I'm going to tell it in exactly the way it's set up in there, and then see what I have, and then go from there. So the editing process was almost entirely finding ways to cut the book, to speed it up, to make it more gripping and engrossing, so that when the reader approaches this 900-page epic novel, they don't feel like it's 900 pages. They're, they're off into the world, and they're suddenly addicted to it. Like I think that's what our favorite novels always do to us, is we actually wish they were another 1,000 pages. I love that. And there was an interview. I mean, seriously, though, there Publishers Weekly, they asked you, one of the questions was, you know, did you consider a shorter version? And I loved your answer. You said, not even for a moment. If you look at the story burning inside of you and say, I'm not sure that'll be marketable, or I don't think it would sell as much as this other idea, then that story is not really burning inside of you. Yeah. And I wonder if that could be a jumping off point to tell us what, so what is the story that was burning inside of you? What is this book about? And why, you know, something that that sustained you through 10 years? I mean, looking at this situation as a young person, by situation, I mean the climate crisis, I really decided like, this is going to be the story of my lifetime. Uh, there's a writer, David Wallace Wells, who has this line that like most, we think of the climate crisis as like all of industrial civilization, all of, all of humanity, but really the majority of the damage has been done since Seinfeld came on the air, right? So this is really the story that like begins in my childhood and is continuing through now. And my first vision of it was just, I wanted to dramatize 
and narrativize what our future will look like. You know, this is such an enormous problem that is so complex and that is so far gone and so totally out of control that in order to turn things around, one of the great dramas of human history will have to unfold. And so as a storyteller, I just love the idea of trying to wrestle that immense hyper object into a narrative that people could enjoy, you know, that people could read as, as almost a thriller, as almost, uh, you know, not quite a thriller, but just something that keeps them turning pages and keeps them engrossed. And do you remember the first time this idea arrived to you? I mean, I think it came to me in pieces. One of the first things I, I sort of started with was this five act structure that I, I sort of it's weird. It's almost like a synesthesia. I could almost like see or feel the movements of the story and how it would progress. And then I almost worked backwards and tried to go and find the characters who would inhabit this world. Like whose point of view would we be seeing these events through? And so that was part of the discovery process. But I was thinking about this book as early as I would say 2006, 2007, 2008. Like that was how early I was like sort of noodling on it, right? And then I didn't really start it. I didn't put the first words to the page until 2010. And so when you talk about that five-part structure, it's really interesting to hear you talk about it. Did you outline? Did you write that down? How much did you expand on it in the beginning? I actually never really outline at the beginning. I kind of just like have a, a map in my head. And I don't know, I've always sort of been that way where I'm writing these incredibly complex novels, but like I mostly just keep it in my head for the first draft. And then like with the deluge, it's so complicated that I, I had to go back and just like, I had the cork board out with the note cards and like the timeline and list, lists of characters just to make sure it's all like knitting together seamlessly. But yeah, it's, it, the level of complexity was, I mean, it's not like Ohio is like some, you know, <laughs> some R.L. Stein, you know, uh, one of those Goosebumps books, um, but it definitely presented a layer of difficulty that even I was like sort of unprepared for as I got into it. I'm really curious about the corkboard that you used. Can you tell us any more about what you were tracking? I literally, it just had each note card was a chapter, had like, here's this chapter, here's what happens on it. Here's some like sort of key moments that are going to tie together later. And, you know, I didn't even use it that much. It was mostly just so I could like look at it quickly and reference it. And when I eventually started moving chapters around and sort of seeing how they could fit together in different configurations, that was helpful. But I think ultimately, like one of my strengths as a writer, and that's not to say I don't have plenty of weaknesses because I do, but one of my strengths is that I can see structure really clearly. And I can sort of organize it in my head very effectively. I'm curious, where did you learn about story structure? Was that something that was covered at Iowa? Are there any other inspirations? I think I just you know, a lifetime of reading and watching film and TV and just sort of playing with it in my own head. I don't have like a very clear and simple answer. There's a book I ever read about it, but I just think it's, and I'm, look, I'm not always right about structure, certainly, but I just have the ability to sort of take the Rubik's cube of story and turn it around in my hand very quickly to see how these different elements will play out. That's an amazing skill. I think many of us envy that. I heard you talk in a previous interview about characters and I really liked the way you talked about trying to understand them from the inside. And you gave an example of how you would read what your characters might read at the time so that you can really get the context of where they're living. And I just wanted to understand a little bit more about that. Were you doing that for 10 plus years for the characters? And how did you organize your notes around them? Yeah, absolutely. What I like to do is like 
before I go to write about a character, read the books they would read, listen to the music they would listen to, just sort of like try to feel in my head the way they might think about things. And it's all, you know, it becomes a total amount of lost work, really. Like I'll give the example from Ohio. There's a character named Stacy, Stacy Moore, who is a graduate student at Michigan writing her doctoral dissertation on this subject, right? So basically to write Stacy Moore, I wrote her entire thesis, put it into Ohio. And then my editor at the time was like, this sucks and this boring, cut this. And so I was, you know, horrified because it was like years of work I'd spent working on this thing. And I cut the whole thing out. It was, you know, basically down to a page of sort of her monologuing. But what it isn't, it's not lost effort because all of that work and all of that thinking goes into other elements of the character. I want to go a little bit deeper on character because you, I think you have, you have a great empathy for understanding people. And maybe part of this is you climbing into their head, but you write about people that like, I, I know you, I kind of generally know what you believe and your philosophy around things, but you write characters that I imagine you disagree with or you wouldn't like in real life. Absolutely. But you write about them in a way that we can't tell that you as a writer don't like them. You know, you're giving them the benefit of the doubt. You're letting their story speak. I don't know if that's as much a question other than like a reflection. Well, no, I mean, that's really well said because it's not like a philosophy I was ever like particularly aware of. But my professor at Iowa and a mentor of mine said basically that exact same thing to me. And I just think it's, you know, I in real life get as frustrated and furious as anybody else. Like, you know, I have all of those human flaws of just like looking at somebody who I think is an idiot and thinking you're an idiot. (laughs) That happens to me all the time, of course. But I think when I sit down to write, it's this other sort of this like part of better part of my nature of all of our natures comes out in that I'm looking at somebody that I dislike or disagree with, but I'm seeing why they feel that way and how their own journey as human beings on this bizarre planet has led them there. And I think that gives me an ability to empathize in a way that is beyond sort of just the facile, well, this person's from this background, so da, da, da. it's more like, here are the events in this person's life that have led to this. Here is how they've seen everything and they've never had an opportunity to see it any other way. And so trying to inhabit that and trying to give as much credence to that view as you can. Amazing, Steve. I mean, I wish that for all of us, especially those of us with really strong viewpoints, you know, to be able to practice that empathy. So it's really, really cool to see it. I'd like to dig a little deeper on the research part. So this book reads some chapters as if it's written by like a climate scientist, some chapters as if it was written by someone who served in the military. I know you've done neither of those things. (laughs) What did the research look like for this book? Did you front load a lot of this? Were you reading over the 10 years? Did you just write the story and say, I actually have no clue if this is right, bookmark it to do the research on it later. Give us an x-ray into what that process was like for you. I always begin on any project with research. Like I always try to look at what the character, so let's take the first chapter as an example. I spent a lot of time reading memoirs from climate scientists who were grappling with this issue. I spent a lot of time reading about the physical process of methane hydrates and how they might melt in sort of a terrifying extinction event. And then it was just a matter of synthesizing all those threads. You know, it's you're like, you can't really start writing before you've researched, even if you're writing about something you know about. I think it's vital to like, Get your brain churning on the subject. And it's not like you're going to use every little bit of it, but it gives you this authority and this ability to sort of see the angles on it. 
I do think there's a way in which you can over-research and certainly that's an enormous problem of mine. And so I think like a lot of the deluge was me peeling back like, oh, do we need 15 pages on ocean acidification? Probably not. This is like a lot of granular detail. But, you know, if you're entering the mind of a climate scientist, as you are in the first chapter, it's like, this is what would preoccupy this man. Like he's worried about his family, his daughters, his wife, he is sick of his brother-in-law, but he's thinking all the time about this complex problem of, of methane hydrates. And so you have to think about it as he would, and therefore it requires a lot of research, but also like not overdoing it so that the reader still has access to it. What's that sense when you, you feel like you're overdoing it? Because I know this is a rabbit hole. A lot of people get stuck down this research rabbit hole. Like what's the guide for you to say, okay, I'm way too deep in this. I heard it described once as research rapture, where you're just so enamored of learning everything you can about a topic that you never actually sit down to write. And when you do write, it's just like this endless, you know, like gob of facts and details and, and whatever. And I think like that is a huge problem of mine. And what I've sort of decided to do is like, I'll read a couple books on a subject, maybe a few articles, listen to a podcast, nothing like too major. And then I'll start writing right there. And so then I feel like I'm rapidly like trying to read as I write, but like I give myself a cutoff on how much I can do. And there it's like, it's time to get to the story. And then you can go back and tinker with it and add more and, you know, delete what you need to, which you will need to delete, but sort of giving yourself a time limit on, on the, the exploration element. Yeah. We're going to dig a bit into the editing process, how you cut down in a little bit, 1500 pages to under 900, but yeah, you know, it's funny, Steve, because I've you know, obviously read like pretty much all of your work, and especially with Tales of Iceland, I saw the seeds of this book, or maybe the seeds of one of the other in the other in Tales of Iceland, where you packaged it was kind of a raunchy, broy, you know, travel log, but packed inside, you made people learn about Iceland, about the climate, about science, about culture. You wrapped essential information in an engaging story. And reading chapter one, especially of the deluge, I see that. And I remember you saying something when we were working on Tales of Iceland about helping people eat their vegetables. And that stuck with me. And I'm, I guess the question is, how did you think about balancing storytelling with having something to say in the deluge and making sure you weren't like going too far in the preach mode? Oh, no. I mean, and that's that was a huge risk that I understood the entire time, because obviously I have very strong opinions on the climate crisis. And in a whole slew of other topics, right? But I think like the biggest landmine in writing a novel about the situation was just coming up with a character who was saying exactly what I think through their mouth, right? Basically turning someone into a sock puppet for Steve Markley. And so I was really careful to make sure that all of these characters had a different, even if they all believed in this and they wanted to do something about it, they have different opinions about it. So their natural antagonism is coming to bear. And then going into each of those characters and deciding why they think this particular way and giving them blind spots, you know, making sure they all have things they don't see. They all have flaws they're incapable of controlling. And so for me, the way to avoid didacticism in the work, in the novel, was to see it deeply through the point of view of the characters and make sure that those characters were not, you know, no superheroes involved. You know, no Captain Planet coming to the rescue. And I think that gives the book this effect of you're just feeling like you're stuck with all these human beings who are arguing about this thing and you are trying to decide who's right. Sounds like real life right now. Yeah. <laughs> We'd love to turn to the topic of editing. You said in the previous interview with us, you said 
that you like to write fearlessly and edit humbly. And I'm curious about what that looked like for the Deluge. What was the most fearless editing that you did? Well, it started from a place of just not being afraid of any subject or any writing any character, just going with it like your gut, basically, and just like getting it all out. Then when it's done and it's all out, going back and with a very fine-tooth comb, looking at every single word and deciding on its import, its impact, its how it will exist in the world, thinking about if it's a human being who I share no traits with whatsoever, giving them their full value as a human being, right? And making sure that if somebody in that exact circumstance were to read this, they would at least recognize a piece of themselves in it. I think that is something that there's so much more conversation about in fiction. And maybe sometimes it's gone too far and it, it sort of paralyzes writers and gives them this sense that like they can't approach any topic that they don't have a total personal experience with. But at the same time, as the writer, you always have to think to yourself, well, this is somebody's experience and I have to honor that. That's really reassuring to hear. I'd love to talk about the editing process. Like you said, you sent off 1,500 pages to your editor and now it's at 900 pages. So I'm curious about the type of feedback you were getting from your editor. What sort of directional steer were you getting? What did you have to cut? I mean, my editor basically... His entire note came to me. It was like, this has to be shorter. You know, that was the whole, that was the whole editorial process. No, it was, but his point was that if you're lost in this research, if you're lost in all of this density, it's going to slow down the story and it's going to lessen the impact. And so we talked a lot about how this book had to move like a freight train. Like it had to sort of grab onto the reader and not give them a chance to close it and put it down. And so now I'm getting a lot of very nice notes from fans about how, like, I read this in five days or I read this in six days, which is, I wouldn't read my book in six days. I could never do, I've done that, but is such a testament to like how the book doesn't feel like this dense slog, like this preachy, you know, peon of environmentalism. It really does feel, hopefully to, to everybody, like, like it does have that thriller quality to it. Right. Absolutely does. You know, we've had a few writers at the salon who've struggled to hear editorial feedback. So they've had feedback from the editor and they've sort of had a bit of a downer for a couple of days or a bit longer. Do you have any advice for receiving feedback from an editor or how have you dealt with it? That's a great question because I think I ran a workshop where once where I could tell like the criticism of the story was really getting to a person and really, really dry. And like, I know it's tough. It's tough to hear. You're basically spilling your consciousness onto the page. And when people sort of pick it apart, it feels awful, right? It feels like in the most personal way, it feels like you are being rendered apart and your value as a person is not what you thought it was. That is so the process of getting critiques and feedback. And yet I think it's really important that writers develop an incredibly thick skin and resilience about their work because it's not going to be perfect. It's never perfect. And so over the years, just through this process of doing it over and over and over again, I've really come to be able to take criticism, accept what I think I disagree with and just be like, they're wrong about this little thing, but then make sure my mind is open to what they're saying about everything else. And just making sure I'm looking at what they're saying and being like, you know, are they right? And so it's just finding that equilibrium of being able to identify what needs to be done. My friend, Karen Russell, who's a wonderful author, calls it echolocation. Like you're taking in all this feedback and you're sort of like trying to figure out between all these, what all these people are saying, 
what actually needs to be edited and improved upon. Echo location. I like that idea. Yeah. So sidebars, footnotes seem to be a style, a Stephen Markley style of writing. Tales of Iceland published this book and now this one. I'm curious your perspective. What do they add? And can you tell us the use of these sidebars? And maybe for people who haven't read the book yet, like, and would you call them sidebars or would you call them something else? I call them the boxes. And the boxes were a very vexing idea that occupied probably when all told all the time crushed together a year of my life working on these stupid boxes. Basically, the boxes are integral to what is happening in the story. They serve a very important purpose. And I think like they differ from previous incarnations of textual adventure that I've done in that they have a very specific reason for being and what they're adding to the story is important and must be carefully read. And so I like to think that like the first chapter of the boxes in the deluge, I'm training the reader how to approach the book, how they're going to learn how to read the book, right? And by the end of it, hopefully it all comes together in a way where, you know, it clicks in and makes sense. But yeah, getting those boxes right you know, I worked with a, a designer at Simon & Schuster and I think I drove her nearly to the brink of insanity because I was like, no, this one has to be like right over, this goes to this sentence and this one's in this paragraph. And just like the level of fastidiousness and psychotic attention to detail I had about it was certainly, you know, probably freaking people out over at Simon & Schuster. Mm. Yeah. Did you get pushback from your editors? Like I could see this as being something to say, are these necessary? What was that conversation like? Well, I never let them see it until it was all the way integrated into the book and impossible to pull out, right? So there was a conversation had in terms of like lessening the level of the boxes because there were more. And that was one of the cuts that occupied a lot of my time was just making sure that you're not taking this too far. Like you're giving the reader enough that they can understand, but not like burdening them. I'd like to play with, um, play with, I'd like to talk about points of view because you play with points of view. So I'm still in part one of the book. So I've read it, but I've read chapters in the third person, first person, second person. And I was wondering what your consideration had been for choosing the different points of view. Well, the points of view are very tied to the point of telling. So by the time you finish the book, I think those choices will make somewhat more sense. It's not just that the book has different points of view, different characters telling the story. It's also that it's different iterations of writing and different techniques and styles of how these stories came to be. And so part of it is the overall project is sort of like, what's going on? Who is telling the story? What are all these worlds that we're inhabiting? Who can we trust? Whose point of view can we trust? Like all of those elements come into play in the book as they do in sort of our madcap infotainment 24-7 social media, internet, wild west that we live in, in terms of how we all are assimilating information. So these switches in point of view and and styles has very much to do with sort of the the landscape that we are all in taking this crisis through. The way we we are all exposed to it is through this very bizarre filter of our present media infotainment system. And so the book plays with that a lot in various ways. Did you have to keep track of the different points of view? Was that in your cork board? Yeah, well, just, you know, I'd have like keeper, you know, I didn't call the chapters what they were called. I'd be like keeper three or, you know, ash five. It was like, that was sort of, since each character gets their full say in each section. So I'm curious from a publishing perspective, what were the differences between Ohio 
and the deluge. I know you're kind of in the first month of publication with this one, but as far as like the amount of attention, marketing budget that your publisher has been able to put toward this, what were the difference between those two books so far? Yeah, this feels and felt earlier uh, in the months leading up to it, this feels much bigger. Definitely like Ohio to the third, you know, Ohio squared in terms of attention. Um, and I, you look like I had, I knew I was going to do that TV appearance on Seth Meyers. And it was all I thought about for like the three months leading up. It was pretty nerve wracking. And so I think for me, it's just been, again, when Publishers book came out, if all this had been happening, I really would have been like, just, you know, like taking a bath in the attention, right? Like I just would have loved it. And now I have a very different relationship to it where I'm not reading any reviews. I'm not watching myself in any interviews. I'm literally just keeping my head down and being like, okay, next thing's next. Working on new stuff. Uh, I have this new job. And just trying to maintain like as normalized a life as I possibly can. Because I feel like, again, this goes to like not getting too high, not getting too low and not getting addicted to the attention to that like very pleasurable feeling of people praising you. And so to me, it's been very exciting, but also like, I'm just very on guard about it, I guess. Mm, yeah. Seems like a healthy, healthy way to be with it. We'll share a link to that Seth Meyers. So Steve, you of course don't have to watch it back, but if anyone wants to watch yeah. that interview, you were awesome. I mean, by the end of that, I think like, I was like, yeah, oh yeah, Steve, like <laughs> preach. Thank you. But maybe the coolest part is that you were on the same segment as Tom Hanks. Is Tom Hanks as like a nice a guy as we think he is? It was almost disappointing how nice he was. He, he just uh, he was just totally lovely. He came and said hi to me. We talked. We chatted for a few minutes. He gave me a lottery ticket. I don't know why, um, but <laughs> it was cool. See Tom Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah, it was it's pretty surreal. It's like your first time on television. And the first person you meet is Tom Hanks. And yeah, it's very bizarre. Yeah. So cool. Very proud. So I'd love to turn. So you said you're on the Paramount lot right now. You've had some gigs writing for TV and in particular, Only Murders in the Building. So you wrote an episode on both season one and season two. And I think they were probably my favorite episodes. I think they were the best. But in both seasons, it was episode seven. Was there any significance to it being both episode seven? Maybe this is a dumb question. Was it happenstance or was there a reason? I think just like, me and my co-writer, Ben Philippe, got episode seven the first year and it did well. People really enjoyed it. And so they were like, we'll give them seven next year, but no, no particular reason. Yeah. Cool. We're curious about your time in the writer's rooms because it's so different to writing a book on your own. Um, you know, collaborating, the writing itself is different, different format. Can you give us a peek into what those writing sessions with you and Ben Philippe looked like? Well, <laughs> It was all on Zoom because it was during the pandemic, which was challenging. It was my first time in a writer's room, which was also challenging. I'd never done that before. And I think for a novelist, it's really hard to move from being the total tyrant of your own world, you know, you're in command of everything, to suddenly, like, even if you think you have a great idea, you're going to say it out loud. It's going to go into the ether of the writer's room and be gone 30 seconds later. And you're like, oh my God, I spent like two days working on that. And it's just done. Nobody cares. And so the collaborative element, I think, was definitely a challenge. But, you know, also like everybody in that room was so hilarious and so fun. And it was such a bizarre, awful time in the world that like being able to like laugh with them from day to day was really important and really fun. And I just think like, you know, we're going to see each other again soon for the WGA Awards. And I'm looking forward to it almost like I would, 
you know, like a high school class reunion, that kind of thing. So just seeing all your old friends. So it was great. Sounds like a lot of fun. How much creative license do you have? You said that you might put an idea and it gets sort of slapped down a bit, but do you have much? You have very little creative license. You know, there's, you know, your, your name is on the episode, but there's a showrunner above you. There's executive producers above them. There's a studio above that. There's a network above that. So it's through all these filters that, you know, by the time the script hits the air, it's been reworked dozens of times. And so you feel good if like almost anything survives. And then certainly for the episode of the first season for 107, a lot of what we had envisioned survived. And I think that episode turned out like pretty spectacular. And we just spoke a couple of minutes ago about the editorial process for your novel. And I'm curious about the feedback and editorial process for the episode. Are there many similarities in how it's delivered and the extent of the cuts? It's so different. And I have so little experience with it that like, I don't even know if it can exemplify it typically. And I just think like, when you're writing with somebody else, there's this whole give and take, this whole exchange. My friend Ben and I always joke, like we were immediate friends. Everybody should check out his book. His name's Ben Philippe. He's uh, mostly a YA writer, but really talented, really funny. But we like got along like a house on fire. We were like two little kindergartners who met for the first time. and were like, let's be best friends. And then had... What I will, I'm not kidding. It was like the war of the century in our script over whether a character was looking through a peephole or a crease in the door, right? The two of us fought for like two hours about this stupid thing. And I, like by the end of it, we were both ready to like jump through the computer and strangle each other. And that's the kind of thing you like that happens when you write with somebody is like you're both looking at the scene and you both see it exactly your way and you just can't get over it. But I'm very proud to say that the people won the day I was right, as I usually am. So if Ben ever sees this, you know. <laughs> we'll have to bring Ben in and get his side of the story. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of fun. I do love the collaborative aspect of it. So you mentioned Ben is a YA writer. So that's his background. You're a novelist. The other writers you saw in the writer's room, what other paths or backgrounds do they come from? It was a very interesting room. There was a playwright, Madeline George, who's brilliant. Highly recommend checking out her plays. And then it was a lot of TV people, a lot of comedy writers, people who had been on shows ranging from This Is Us to Family Guy to Silicon Valley, you know, and everything in between. So it was a really cool collection of people. Right. And you said that you were pulled in because someone liked your work. Is that how everyone else was pulled in by just people liking their work? Or just curious, like if someone's like wishing, like, you know, I want to be in a TV room, that's my goal. Is there a common path in or is it like just write and hope that someone notices you? I mean, it's such a, I like, I don't understand it at all. And I've been out here for seven years now. My way in was pretty aberrant just in that Dan Fogelman, the executive producer, he created, wrote This Is Us and a bunch of other stuff. Crazy Stupid Love is one of his movies that he had read Ohio and he just like loved it and basically was like, is this guy around? And that's how I ended up with that job. I was actually in the midst of finishing the deluge when his production company first got in touch with me. And I was like, I don't have time for this. I'm editing a book. I didn't take the meeting at all. And then only later in the summer after I turned it in, was like, oh, maybe I should do that now. And then like ended up on Only Murders in the Building after that. So, but yeah, so now I'm writing on this new show and it's again, the first day and I'm skipping class, but I'm really excited about being here and, and this idea, this concept. And yeah, I mean, I think in terms of getting into Hollywood, it helps to come out here. And then you just bounce around for a few years failing at everything, just like in literary publishing. And hopefully 
after a while, something clicks, something works. But I'm a big proponent of the fact that like, it's none of its wasted effort. Everything you do amounts to something as long as you're putting in the work. Mm. I remember when you first went out to LA, I think you said, I'm going out here for five years and I hope something happens. Basically, you're like, you committed, you put yourself out there, but you also like kind of put a container to it. I don't know if that's as much of a question than a reflection of like the determination to put yourself in the right place and just reflecting back on that now. Well, I was thinking about that not too long ago because like when I moved out here, I remember my dad had come out with me and we were driving around and he was like, I just remember him saying this so clearly. He was like, wow, this is going to be a big change for you. And I, I was like, yeah, like I've never lived outside of the Midwest, you know, like I, I traveled of course, but the idea of like just moving to LA with a thousand dollars and the stuff in my car and no job and like trying to make it work, like, you know, it was pretty intense, but I definitely spent a couple of years where I was adjunct teaching and, you know, I, I had a freelance editing job that I got fired from and just was like, that's why I put the five-year limit on it. It's like, I don't want to be out here in this expensive city, banging my head against the wall for a decade. So, you know, luckily things have, you know, not just worked out, but it worked out pretty spectacularly. Mm. And the irony too, is that a lot of this, the launching pad for you getting work in LA, I think was Ohio, which was the novel. Yeah. Is that right? Absolutely. But I guess you were in the place that then when someone wanted to have a meeting, you were able to answer the call. Yeah. And I think that's also how I ended up out here is, um, I don't know if I've talked about this in the last interview. While I was at Iowa, David Milch, who's a very famous TV writer, he did Deadwood and NYPD Blue. He came out because he was an Iowa alum, gave a speech and then just basically said, if anybody has a script they want me to read, I'd be happy to. I happened to have written the script a few years ago and put it in the drawer, not thinking anything of it, but he read it and he really loved it. And like through that path, I ended up with an agent. And so that's what I think whenever I give advice, it's like, you know, just don't just keep working to keep working, to keep honing your skills, but you never know what opportunity might arise. Like you just don't know. And so like I had a basketball coach once who said, going into the end of the game, you can't guarantee that you're going to win the game. All you can do is put yourself in a position to win. And so that's what I think of it as, is you just have to put yourself in a position to win. So when that opportunity comes along, you're ready for it. I'm curious in those five years, was there anything else you did in terms of, I want to say networking, reaching out to people, trying to be part of the writing community, anything that might be a good, good piece of advice for someone who's considering doing the same? Yeah, I'm a big proponent of if you are not in, in an MFA program, like having a writer's group, having a group of people that you share your work with and you give each other comments and feedback. I think that's really important. But I had moved out here with a friend from Iowa. And, you know, at the time I, I had, you know, Ohio finally got picked up by Simon & Schuster. So I was really spending all of my time editing that and working on that as hard as I could. And I was just hustling, you know, I think like that is an element of my story that people should, if they're taking nothing else away, taking that away, like just always hustling, always working, always having another iron in the fire, another idea, another plan, and just sort of being relentless about the work ethic part of it. Yeah. I mean, and watching your journey, you're certainly one of the hardest workers I know. I mean, you know, sometimes you think of like writers and artists and they can feel like different than hard workers, you know, but like you have that like Midwestern work ethic that seems to have served you well. <laughs> Somebody once said to me, you can always tell a person from the Midwest because 
they talk about sports and they like to work. They like to go to work. And I was like, yeah, it's because it's in the winter. There's nothing to do. It's freezing out. So you're just, you watch football and then you go to your job. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious, zooming out a little bit with this reflection now, and you might've already answered this, but do you have writing friends either from Iowa or elsewhere who maybe haven't quite hit the success that you have yet? Do you think there's anything that you've done differently? Is it what you're talking about, the putting yourself in the right place, the hustle, determination, maybe it's luck, anything else? I certainly have those friends, but I would also say that some of them are just at different stages of their journey. Like they're at the the stage I was at when I was 25 or 27 or 30. There's this element of like, when you look over your shoulder and who's behind you, you know, that's like the most unhealthy thing you can do because you don't know what work they put in. So you can't look at other people's tests, right? You got to like keep focused on what you're doing. And I think like a lot of those people I know who haven't done something yet, they will. As long as they keep the spirit up and keep the work ethic strong, like they will get there. And the other thing though, is that like, you can't guarantee that your book's going to come out and be a wild success. You can't guarantee that you're going to get on to a show. None of this is promised, right? And so again, I have to keep coming back to those elements of like loving the work, loving what you're doing, loving the story you're telling, and then also just being ready. And that's all you can guarantee in this world. There's nothing else. So I think like at Iowa, when those first few weeks I was there, a bunch of people were getting these huge book deals and it was sort of intimidating, you know, like somebody, oh, my classmate got a million dollars for a book. Like that's insane. But like just making sure that you're not feeling jealousy about that, that you're just like, I, that doesn't matter what I'm working on. This is the thing that matters to me. I love that. I love that because Matt and I often talk about controlling what you can control. And everything that you've outlined is what is within our control. Let's talk a little bit about money. I wonder what you've learned about where the money is for writers in 2023. You know what Oscar Wilde said, which is that amateurs talk about art, real artists talk about money. So, so what specifically would you like to know? Like, uh... well, you've had some experience writing for Hollywood. You've had. I actually don't know if your books have been optioned yet, or whether. Yeah, Ohio was optioned. The Deluge has not been optioned. But yeah, I mean, look, I spent the first 15 years of my career perpetually broke, drowning in credit card debt, just trying to like figure out my next move and having like very few successes along the way in terms of like my finances. And so that has finally changed. And certainly coming out to Hollywood has helped change that. It's a lucrative place, lucrative career. But I think it's something that's vital for writers to talk about because, uh, God, I read this essay once by this woman, Alexandra Kimball which I just love because she just pointed a finger right at her journalism career and was like, I have struggled in my career because I don't have family money. And she was sort of looking at her landscape as a writer and seeing all the people around her and, you know, parents who've paid for places to live in New York city so they can do unpaid internships. Like our class stratification, where we are coming from matters so much to how we turn out right in every avenue of life. And so certainly money as a writer is no different. And I think for me, you know, I'm not from dirt farmers. My parents are professors, but I was so adamant that I was going to make it on my own and therefore did like a a whole series of terrible jobs for my entire 20s and, and most of my 30s to make that work. And I think my goal was always like be working in something that I, I, I can have that time to write, like making sure I'm protecting my time, never taking anything that's going to be like, a 60 hour a week, like marathon slog. And even when I was getting into this writer's room, I was talking to Dan and just making sure that like, 
this room is going to operate on normal business hours. Like it's not going to take up all of our lives because some writers' rooms can do that, like where you're just sitting here till midnight going on about something. So I really think just like being able to carve out the time to work is the most important element of that. And you mentioned that Hollywood is lucrative. And I wonder, not quite sure how to ask this, but how the the writers' rooms, is that, do you do that because it's guaranteed money as well as it being an interesting proposition? Do you try and balance that with the book writing? Because obviously for books, it's a bit more unstable. Yeah, well, oh, totally. And that's the great thing about, you know, you're getting a paycheck every week, which is like for me, is like a basically a new idea. <laughs> I haven't done that since I lived in Chicago, more or less. Um, I guess in Iowa, I was teaching where I did. But uh, Is this when you were crashing on Matt's couch in Chicago? That's right. I appeared on our friend Brian DeSessi's Horror Movie Club podcast, and we were talking about how I'd been sleeping on their couch for so long that when I came back from like the Christmas break, Brian sent me an email saying like, the couch is now closed for business after this month. <laughs> I was like, uh, I got kicked out of the couch. I guess given all this information, kind of knowing you're smarter now about where the money is and how this whole, these industries work, publishing, Hollywood, all these things. Do you think if you were a writer starting out today, let's say you were, you know, Steve Markley in your early to mid twenties, do you think you would approach it differently? I mean, I know this is hard because you say, well, the reason I'm here is because I did all these things that I hated at the time or didn't work. But like, if you had to start, do you think you would go a different path? Yeah, I probably would have tried to get into Iowa faster. Like, I didn't want to do that. Like, I was very against the idea of going to an MFA program. But that is really the thing that changed the trajectory of my life. But, you know, again, it's like you can't, we are only the things that have made us, right? So I would never have written published this book then. I never would have done Tales of Iceland. Like, those were experiments. And what's good about an experiment is you learn a bunch. Like, you get reps at the craft, at the publishing process, at all of, at promotion, at doing things like this. And so I look back at, at the past part of my career and I have no regrets. I have plenty of shame, but no regrets. Yeah. If you were, I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but if you're a young writer starting out today, do you have any advice for them? I know you've given us so many gems here, but you know, early 20 something, you're starting in your career. Any thoughts? Perseverance. I think that's really the only the only good advice is perseverance. Like it's just such a long slog. It is so emotionally draining. It's so psychologically exhausting that you have to like be prepared for that. And when you're starting out, there's just this sense of like, well, people are going to read my genius, pay me tons of money. I'll marry and divorce an actress right away. And we'll, you know, everything will be hockey dory. And it's never like that. It's just nothing but hard work and staring at your computer screen by yourself. And that is sort of something you have to be prepared for. Hmm. What about older writers? So we have a lot of people in our community who are maybe coming into writing either as a second career or maybe as a hobby. Any thoughts for maybe older writers starting? Would it be the same or any other? I think it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. And, you know, the difference between being a young writer is that you just assume all this will land in your lap right away. And when you come at it from sort of an older age, I think you have the maturity of life. You have all these experiences, you have disappointments. You know, I think one of the biggest things you learn to deal with as a writer is rejection and disappointment and humiliation and being okay with that. And I think that is a skill that when you're older, you've already learned in so many other facets of your life. I'd love to dial back a little bit to the money question. I just had another question. I don't know if it's too cheeky to ask, but given what you know and your experience in Hollywood, how much could a writer earn? from TV writing? And I realize it varies, 
but any sort of guidance on a range that you've seen would be helpful. Yeah. I mean, if you're starting out, it was the best paying job I've ever had by, you know, quite a significant margin. And if you get to these upper levels, if you've been doing it for a while, like it's a ton of money. And, you know, I'll say this, like we're in the midst of a potential labor action, uh, the Writers Guild of America, the WGA, my union. And the reason we all get paid so much is because that union fought for these, these kinds of salaries over the years. And writers are the indispensable part of Hollywood. Like Hollywood doesn't survive without the intellectual property we produce, the creative elements we bring to the table. And so we're like the invaluable cog. And, you know, it's the work of that union that has been able to do this. And so I think that's an important element of the story in terms of coming out to Hollywood and like why the money is so good out here. So the upper levels, are we talking sort of millions or? Yeah, look, if you're Dan Fogelman and you've created a hit show on NBC called This Is Us, you know, I, I assume that he owns his own bunker in New Zealand. You know, it's like, I think like, you know, you're very well paid if you're at that level. Yeah. So thanks for sharing. I have a question about criticism. You said you try not to read things, watch things. Is that your philosophy? Do you have a, can you expand on that philosophy around criticism? And maybe criticism that you can't escape. Like if it creeps in and you have to, you read something that someone is critical of your work. What's your approach? I mean, I just remember when published this book came out, you know, I was reading everything and this one, you know, dumb guy on a blog like hated on the book or whatever. And I thought about it for like four weeks. Like I couldn't get it out of my head. And you know, I went, I was like 27 at the time. So it really, it bothered me and I let it bother me. And now it's like, what, why did I care? Like, why did I care about that? This is so ridiculous. Right. And so to me, it's about that element of like, when you read a review, even if it's all amazing and there's one negative bit, the negative bit is what you take away from it. Right. It's what festers and sort of preoccupies you. But then the flip side of this for me is that like when you're getting a lot of praise and when you're getting all this, you know, these pats on the head, this sort of like you start to believe your own hype, right? You start to believe that you're like this infallible godlike manipulator of the language and you have all these powers and you're just so masterful and you're such a genius. How could anybody doubt you? And suddenly, you know, your ego's swelling up, right? And the thing about like allowing your ego that satisfaction is that the criticism becomes even worse when it happens. It becomes even harder to take, right? And so I think I just really tried to balance myself out by saying like, I can't control how this book is received. People will read it and take away from it, hopefully what I have intended, but maybe not. And I'm in this because it's what I love and because it's the thing I care about the most. And, you know, I talked about last time, I think about how writing is like pretty much spiritual for me. Like, I feel like it's, you know, more or less given me purpose on this planet, And so like remembering that is why I do this and not for the external rewards. Like it has to be intrinsic. It's really good advice. I love that. And maybe you mentioned the deluge. What is your your hope for the book? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not going to sit here with a lot of false humility being like, I, you know, I don't think it will help anything. I don't, you know, but uh, I obviously wrote it because I care passionately about this issue, about what is being done to the planet, to our civilization, to our society. And At this point, I view the solution to the problem as every one of us lowering our shoulder and doing the small thing we can, right? And to me, art is a vital part of the process of creating great social change. Like great social change has never happened without first all like the artists arriving at the issue. And that is 
you know, in looking at all these social movements across history, which I did plenty of in terms of research for the book, you always see the writers, the poets, the musicians, the filmmakers, the painters, you see all these people pointing out these enormous issues and creating the atmosphere that leads to the change beforehand. And so I think like, obviously the novel is in that spirit and in that vein. And I, I, you know, I, I also don't want to sound too grandiose about that. Like I understand the limitations of who a novel is reaching, but at the same time, I told myself through the entire process, like if you can get 15 people to read this and care as much about this as you do, that is worth the effort. And so I, you know, hopefully it will be more than that, of course, but I really do believe that art is one of our most vital tools in terms of affecting the great social changes that we sometimes all envision. It's beautiful. Well, maybe a couple of those 15 are here in the room, Steve. So I hope so. Um, I wouldn't, wouldn't doubt it. So I have a question for you just around where your head's at now, because you've spent 10 years with your head in two major books, so High and the Deluge. It's out now. They're both out. What's in your head now? Where do you go from here? Well, I learned a long time ago that you can't, you have to have the next project lined up and ready to go and even be working on it already. Because there's this this weird postpartum moment that happens after you publish a book where it's suddenly not yours anymore. It belongs to everybody else. And there's like a lot of sadness that comes with it where you like inexplicably are like, oh, I'm like, that's those characters aren't mine anymore. That world isn't mine anymore. And so I have been preparing for that moment and I, I have a, a new two book deal with Simon and Schuster. So I'm already off and running on the next two books, basically. And then I have some stuff floating around Hollywood, some pitches, some ideas that are just sort of bouncing around. Hollywood's in a weird moment where like everything is getting canceled and, you know, people are like burying money. I think, you know, like Disney is burying money like under its mattress right now and <laughs> trying to weather their, whatever recession they believe is happening. So you know, it's not a great time to sell stuff out here, but that's okay because I, you know, have insulated myself with this other career and I've worked to give myself projects that line up far into the future. That's really exciting. Love it. Can you tell us anything about those two books? Totally decline my request, but I'm curious. Yeah, I have to totally and completely decline that request, but uh, I just feel like I'm somebody who I can't let out even, I can't even let people have a peek in the box before, uh, you know, I have to do like the whole thing first respect. This has been, I thought the last interview was good. I think this might've topped it. Thank you so much, Steve, for being a role model, your wisdom, being so open with us. You're definitely the hardest worker, one of the hardest workers I know. And I've uh, just, just proud to know you. So thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops, and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again.